Hey there, good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, or whenever you're listening to the podcast. I am glad you are here. Welcome to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. As we say regularly, our goal on this podcast is to give blue jeans theology. And what I mean by that is theology that's in the language of everyday life, that's rooted in everyday life, so that people can follow Jesus in their everyday life. And in fact, I got an email last week from a man named Luke who is pastoring in rural Kansas. And somehow he had become aware of some of my Bible teaching resources, both this and the commentary. And he said that he always was committed to blue jeans theology. He just never had a phrase for it until he heard me say that uh, because ministering there in small towns in uh, rural Kansas, that's the kind of theology people needed. They needed everyday speech, everyday language to help them understand the Bible and understand Jesus. So Luke, if you're listening, man, I'm so glad that uh, you're a fellow comrade in Blue Jeans Theology because I too, along with you, have experienced that that's what people need. And it doesn't matter whether they're in rural Kansas or in London or in South Africa or Japan. People want to understand the Bible in the language of everyday life so that they can they can see it. It becomes three-dimensional and it makes sense to them. And they can see how it intersects with their life so they can begin to follow Jesus in their everyday life. And that's the goal of everything we do here on the Bible and Life podcast is to provide that kind of Bible teaching so that you can follow Jesus right where you live. So I am glad you're here. If you're a brand new listener, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to this episode. We are actually beginning a brand new series on this episode where we're looking at some of the confusing statements and confusing teachings of Jesus. I'm just calling it what did Jesus mean by, and I've asked various uh, listeners to the podcast, people on my Instagram or on Facebook for their input, uh, what are some of those statements of Jesus, teachings of Jesus that just left you kind of scratching your head to walk away and be like, man, I, I don't know what he meant by that. And so over the next handful of weeks, I just want to explore, and some weeks we'll take one question that maybe is going to take a little bit longer, and we'll look at that whole passage and that teaching and try to sort it out. Other weeks, we might do two or three questions as we work through a couple and just walk through some of these passages that have left us when reading the Gospels, kind of scratching our head and wondering, what did Jesus mean by that? And so today on this episode, we are going to begin this series with a question that it was actually the very first question sent in when I uh, asked on my Instagram, what uh, what would you say has left you confused by Jesus' teaching? This question was the first one to come in, and it was a question about marriage. Um, and it, it comes about not because Jesus' teaching is confusing per se or unclear. It comes about because Jesus' teaching is so brutally clear, so painfully clear, that then as we reflect on that teaching, it's like, but what about, what about, what does he mean by, and, and that question is this, well, since Jesus said there will be no marriage in heaven, what's the point of marriage on earth, and what will our relationship be with our earthly spouses like in heaven? That's the question. Um, and this question derives from a passage in Matthew 22, verse 30, where Jesus says, as clear as can be, for in the resurrection, 
They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, first thing to note, just by uh, just clarifying the phrases in that sentence, he says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And what Jesus seems to be getting at by those two phrases are uh, Mary being the man marries the wife, or they're not given in marriage, the family or the, you know, the father of the bride gives away the bride. And so we're looking at neither marriage nor given in marriage. There's just no marriage, in other words. And the questioner asked, there's no marriage in heaven. But notice there in Matthew 22:30, it's not specifically heaven. We can be a little more precise in our theological language than that. For in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And so it's technically not in heaven, but in the resurrection. And so just to clarify that, the uh, New Testament theology teaches that that when someone dies, if they are in Christ, they go to heaven to be with God, with Jesus in heaven. But then there's going to come a time when Jesus will return. He'll make all things new and restore all things. And those in Christ will be restored or will be resurrected to eternal life to live on a new earth in a new universe forever and ever. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the time period we're talking about here is in the resurrection, in the restoration of all things, when there's a new earth and we are resurrected and we have resurrected bodies. That's really, really important that we note that. And so it's not just heaven, because we conceive of heaven as just disembodied spirits. And presumably, if we understand our New Testament right, that's what happens between death and the second coming of Jesus. But at his second coming, there'll be a resurrection. So resurrected bodies are involved in what we're talking about in the new earth. The other thing to note about this passage is that it's actually in response to a question. There's a broader context to it that we just want to make sure we have in mind as we wrestle with the implications of it. And that context is this. Um, it's towards the end of Jesus' uh, life on earth before his crucifixion. It's his final week. He's being questioned by various uh, religious teachers and leaders in Jerusalem. On this occasion, some Sadducees, which was a particular group of Jews, uh, usually elite ruling priests who controlled the temple, some Sadducees came to Jesus with a question. And Sadducees were well known for not believing in um, the resurrection. And they didn't believe in the resurrection specifically because they only saw the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only saw those books as authoritative scriptures, and they couldn't establish a clear doctrine of the resurrection from those scriptures, and thus they didn't think there would be a resurrection to come. The other major group that we see in the Gospels, at least, is the Pharisees, and they're the ones that did say, no, there is a resurrection, and that's because they accepted uh, what we see as the rest of the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, Jewish Scriptures, as God's Word and authoritative as well. And there is some clear indicators there that there is a some sort of resurrection. And so the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus, and they asked him a question, and the question is sort of this hypothetical situation that in their mind sort of proves the absurdity of a resurrection, and it's based on an Old Testament teaching, an Old Testament law um, of leviterate marriage, where if a 
a man and a woman get married, and then the husband dies before having any kids, and thus there's no offspring, because preserving the family line and protecting the family land was so important, one of the ways God provided for that in the Old Testament was uh, that his brother then would be responsible for uh, taking his widow and marrying her so that they could have children. That's what the Old Testament law uh, provided, and it was a way really to protect the family lineage, the family name, as well as the family property, the family land. And so in this hypothetical situation, the Sadducees basically say, so this happened seven times. There were seven brothers, and and each one kept dying with no kids, no kids, no kids. Then last of all, the wife died. And so in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? And in the Sadducees' mind, this just proves the absurdity of the idea of a res- the resurrection, right? There certainly can't be a resurrection. And Jesus responds to that by saying, well, you're mistaken since you don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And so this statement is, is a really just part of his response to their argument against the resurrection. And Jesus' point is to say, your illustration is flawed because you actually don't understand how the resurrection is going to work. Then he goes on and and actually helps them see from the scriptures they respected that people do survive death and there really is life after death and thus there will be a resurrection. Um, So the reason that's important to note that this is in response to a question is it means we don't have a complete teaching of Jesus on this, all right? This is a passing comment in response to a question not about marriage and not about marriage in the resurrection, but about the resurrection. And so we just get sort of this passing comment and it'd be like, man, I wish we could just sit down and pick Jesus' brain a little bit more on this and fill us in because we don't have tons of details. So his his statement is, is clear. It's just incomplete because it wasn't trying to give a complete answer to our questions about this. Now, having said that, let's jump in then and wrestle with at least some of the things that we want to know out of this and some of the the things the the questioner asked about this um, as she fleshed out her question. Um, It's clear from what Jesus says that there is no marriage in the resurrection. So on the new earth, we won't be married and there'll be no weddings, all right? There is no marriage and there is no weddings on the new earth. The questioner then follows up with, so what's the point of marriage on earth? What will our relationship be with our spouses like in heaven? And as she kind of flushed out her thought, she said, you know, there was marriage in Eden, so we know marriage isn't bad. So why wouldn't there be marriage in heaven? And how does this all go together? So we're wrestling with this topic. And here's just some things to think about. Um, Even though there was marriage in Eden, that doesn't mean that all our relationships have to be the same in the resurrection. That there will be continuity between the, this present world, this present earth, and the new earth. And what we do on this present world and this present earth 
is building for and working for what's going to come on the new earth, and there will be carryover. So there will be some continuity between life now and life then, and there will be some things that are similar or even the same. There will be some things that are different. And so continuity does not equal sameness. Everything doesn't have to be the same, in other words. So just because in Eden, when life was perfect before the fall, there was marriage, doesn't mean there has to be marriage on the new earth. So I think what we should do is we should, at least when it comes to marriage, maybe consider the purpose of marriage as given in that original creation context back there in Genesis 1 and 2. And really one of the primary purposes, the most significant purpose that's given there, there's two main ones, but one of the primary, one of those main ones, one of the primary purposes is what you could call complementary oneness. Complementary oneness. Like two puzzle pieces that fit together just the way they're supposed to. Uh, like two parts of a whole that together they're they're complete. There was a complementary oneness that uh, was part of that. The way it's expressed there in Genesis chapter 2 is God has made a human being, a male. He has brought all the animals before the human beings, but the the animals don't fit. They're, they're a different type of creature. They're a different type of being than a human being. And so the man is now all by himself. He's alone. And what God says is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper that fits him, that's a complement to him, a complementary oneness. Uh, and then it goes on in Genesis 2 and says that uh, these two shall become one flesh. They'll become one unit, one in partnership. And so uh, humans are not meant to do life by themselves alone, apart from other humans. Even in a, a context where there's a perfect relationship with God, the Garden of Eden, it wasn't good for man to be alone. We're not meant to do life all by ourselves. We're made in the image of God. God is inherently social, social Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're meant to be social. So we need other human beings, people who are like us and yet different from us, to complete us. And marriage is one of the, the key embodiments of that complementary oneness. Now, that's not the only purpose of marriage stated in the original creation account. The, one of the other purposes is procreation, right? Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and fill the earth. And so procreation and making more humans, creating more people. That was another purpose of marriage in the original creation context. And so those two purposes are stated very explicitly in the original creation context. There is one oft-overlooked purpose uh, at present in present time that the Apostle Paul particularly draws out when he's giving instructions on marriage in Ephesians 5. And that purpose has to do with the fact that marriage in some mysterious way, Paul says, is like a signpost to our relationship or to the relationship between Jesus and the church. Um, and so you get this interplay there in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 of Christ and the church, husband and wife, Christ and the church, husband and wife. And then towards the end of that passage, Paul says that this is a profound mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. And so he's giving instructions about marriage, 
But in some way, he's also speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so marriage, in some profound, mysterious way, is intended to be a pointer to, a signpost towards, the relationship between Christ and the church. And the church there is described as the bride of Christ. Well, here's the thing. Once you've arrived at a destination, you no longer need the signposts that tell you where the destination is at, how far off it is, or what it's like, right? And so the the idea seems to be that when Christ is ultimately and finally wed to his bride, the marriage feast of the Lamb, as it's called in the book of Revelation, when there's that great climactic day when the church, God's people, and Christ are united fully and completely once and for all. When union with Christ is complete, the signpost of marriage is no longer needed. And certainly procreation is no longer needed in the new earth either because the earth will have been filled, populated, and so procreation is no longer needed. So the only remaining purpose out of the purposes that seem to be the most primary in the, the scriptures is the only remaining purpose is oneness. Oneness. Of which the greatest experience of oneness will be our perfect, complete union with Jesus. And so we'll experience that perfectly and completely. And yet, if Genesis 1 and 2 and the Garden of Eden is any clue, even that that perfect union with Jesus will not remove our need for deep oneness with other human beings, right? It's not good for man to be alone. And so I suspect that God, in his wisdom and in his goodness, will provide for deep oneness with other humans in some way that we don't fully understand or fully appreciate yet because we don't experience it yet. And so. Um, you don't have to have marriage to have deep oneness with other human beings, right? Single people, our single brothers and sisters in Christ can tell us this and they can teach us this, that there is intimacy and there is partnership and there is oneness that can be found without marriage. And so if marriage is in some sense superseded or surpassed, it, it's not meaning there isn't going to be complementary oneness. It'll be a kind of complementary oneness that'll be deeper and greater than any experience of complementary oneness that we have in the here and now. So to summarize, the two major things I am trying to emphasize here is in the resurrection, our oneness with Jesus will be so great and so complete that it will satisfy our longings in ways we could never at present fully appreciate or imagine. And our oneness with other human beings is going to be uh, so rich, so vibrant, and so deep that it will experience our need for that oneness uh, in such a deep way that we can't fully appreciate it now. Our experiences now, even marriage now, is only a signpost to the level of intimacy and oneness we will experience in the resurrection. And indeed, the scriptures are clear that in that time period, in the resurrection, when Jesus returns, um, we will be reunited with loved ones, right? It's not like those relationships will end. And so what will our relationship be with our earthly spouses for those of us who are married? Like, 
I suspect we will be deeper and closer and more one then than we are now in a in a deep, intimate, human, complementary oneness that even now our marriages only roughly approximate and only barely uh, we can imagine. And so we look forward to a deeper connection with our closest relationships, including our spouses, in the, the age to come, in the resurrection. And before we leave this topic, if we're going to be fair to it, we need to ask the question that often is on a lot of people's minds uh, regarding this. And that question is, well, yeah, but what about sex in the sense of sexual intercourse, sexual relations? And usually that question comes up because it's like, well, sex is so great. And if we don't have sex in the new earth, if we don't have marriage, then will we have sex? And, 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 um, we need to be honest. That's a real question. But here's what we need to understand. Our asking of that question betrays really a couple of things. One is that um, sexual relations, having sex in the New Testament and in all of biblical theology is an expression of, it's supposed to be a, an expression of that oneness, a depth of intimacy and vulnerability. Sex is simply an expression of that. And so whatever new kind of relationship we have, there will be a kind of intimacy and oneness that will be greater than even the sexual activity. That's part of it. Two, our oneness with Jesus will be so great that there will be a depth of satisfaction for our needs for love and intimacy that will supersede it. And three, asking that question, I love C.S. Lewis's analogy, is sort of like a child who loves candy and um, at some point, you're having this your conversation with your child about sex because it's the time to have that conversation. Something came up at school or something, right? And so they ask you a question about it. And so you're trying to have this conversation about how great you know, sex is. And sex is a, a really special, unique pleasure between husband and wife. And they want to know if, do you eat candy while you're having it, C.S. Lewis says, because their greatest, most pleasurable thing they can imagine is eating candy. And you're like, well, no, you don't eat candy because you don't, you got something better to think about than candy, right? This is C.S. Lewis's analogy. And, and that sort of seems to be the point in the total theology of the scriptures is that our oneness with Jesus and our oneness with other human beings will be so incredible, so great that uh, it'll surpass the intimacy of sexuality in a good, right kind of marriage. And so we can't totally imagine that level of oneness, and we can't imagine a place where, uh, you know, there's a deeper kind of intimacy than even sexual intimacy, and yet that seems to be what the New Testament teaches, and that seems to be the total biblical theology on this. So there will be no marriage in the resurrection. Um, there will be no weddings in the resurrection, but there will be intimacy with Jesus and a depth of intimacy and oneness with each other that we can, as of yet, hardly even begin to imagine. All right. Thanks for asking that question. That's an important question that a lot of people have wrestled with, so I'm glad you asked it so we could explore at least a little bit together. I hope what I provided here gives some understanding and some sense of how to think about and approach that question uh, as a married person who is trying to follow Jesus and who's looking forward to the age to come. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I am so glad you were here. 
If you've been impacted in some way by this podcast, could I just ask you to prayerfully consider maybe supporting this podcast and this ministry financially in some way? We are about 30 to 35% funded, and all your gifts uh, make a world of difference. So no matter how big or how small, how much or how little uh, you're able to contribute, would you prayerfully just say, man, this ministry has meant so much to me, and I would love to help out however I can. So if you're able to do that, great. If not, no worries. I'm just glad you're a part of the Bible and Life family. Thanks a ton for being here. I hope you have a great week in Christ.